$100. I don't know why he needed it, but he really felt sincere that he needed $100. So he prayed for two weeks to God, asking God to please God send me $100. Well, nothing happened, so he decided he would write God a letter asking for the $100. Well, the post office received a letter, and on it it said, the, for the address, it said, God, USA. So the post office thought that it would be a good thing to send it to uh, the president. Just the president. I'm not naming names. If, if there's one you like more than another, you can put that person's name in. Well, the letter, letter arrived at the desk of the president. When the president read it, he was so impressed, so touched, so amused, that he told his secretary to send the young man $50. Obviously, that was a lot of money for such a young boy. Well, the little boy received the letter and saw the $50 in there, and he was very excited. So right away, he sat down to write a letter to God, a thank you letter to God. And here's what his letter said. Dear God, thank you very much for sending me the money. However, I noticed that for some reason you had to send it through Washington, D.C., and as usual, those devils took half of it. <laughs> it's been said that among the many things you aren't supposed to talk about in polite company is religion and politics and money. Obviously, Matthew did not get that memo since this story today has all three of those. And of course, Jesus really wasn't a person of polite conversation anyway. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you'd know that because Jesus is taking the religious leaders to task. I think it's been four weeks in a row now. There's been a parable, and in the parable, the bad guys are always the religious leaders because they have abused the trust, the authority given them by God to care for the people, and they've misused it for their own means and own ends. Well, today, there's not a parable. Instead, there's a group of people that decide they're going to trap Jesus to make him look bad because the crowds are just loving him. There's two groups that come together. One of them is uh, the uh, Pharisees. Talked about the Pharisees a little bit last week. Pharisees, the, the word means separated ones. The Pharisees would get more powerful after the time of Jesus, but these are the group, this is the group of religious leaders who have studied the law and know what it means to be faithful in their Jewish life and what it means to be unfaithful. And these Pharisees are certain to have very little association with the Romans because the Romans were thoroughly pagan. That was one group. The other group was the Herodians. As the name implies, these were officials who worked for King Herod. King Herod was head over Judea, which used to be called Israel, the head of Judea, and was employed, was working for the Roman government. So in other words, you had the Pharisees and the Herodians who, in most occasions in life, would absolutely have nothing to do with each other, but because both of them don't like Jesus, they work together. They plot to trap him. Of course, they begin very sarcastically, very unfaithfully. 
Teacher, we know you're sincere. You teach the way of God in accordance with truth. And you show deference to no one. For you don't regard people with partiality. They're trying to sweet talk him. So they ask him the question meant to trap him. Tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Taxes. In, in the Jewish time of that day, um, there were many different taxes. One of the taxes, for instance, was the temple tax. that would be paid yearly to keep up the temple. This specific tax here, though, is the imperial tax. And this was a tax that was collected specifically to pay for the Roman occupation of Judea. In other words, all the people of Judea, including the Jews, were expected to pay a tax to prop up the hated Romans. Should we pay that tax or not, Jesus? Here's how they try to trap him. If Jesus says, well, yes, you should pay that tax, then the Pharisees and those like the Pharisees will say, well, obviously you are not a person of God because that is blasphemy to pay this tax to these pagans. If Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay that tax, then the Herodians are going to jump on the bandwagon and say, now, wait a minute, this is an act of treason against Rome. He should go to jail for that. In other words, they're trying to discredit Jesus. Well, he isn't going to be discredited. He says that Jesus is aware of what they're doing, and he says, why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? He calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites is a theatrical term of, of putting on a mask. In a theatrical production, you know, you would put on a mask and act as if you were someone else. That's what hypocrite literally means, to act in a way that's really not you. And the way that they are flattering Jesus is pure hypocrisy. Show me the coin, he said. So they brought him a denarius. The denarius was the common... Um, a denarius was, was worth about one day's wage. Um, it was a common currency in the Roman system. Notice Jesus doesn't have one. Whose head is this? Whose title is this? And they say the emperors. Now let me tell you a little bit about that coin. There would have been the image of Caesar on one side. And then on the other side of the coin would have been an inscription. And here's what the inscription said. Son of the divine emperor Augustus Caesar. Son of the divine emperor. In other words, Caesar... Son of God. The denarius could not be used to pay the temple tax. You know why? Because such a pagan coin could not be used in the worship space of God. You know, in the temple, when Jesus turned over the tables, he turned over the tables of the money changers. The money changers were the folks there who would trade out the denarius for a coin that could be used in the temple. It's the emperor's image, his inscription. And then he said to him, Give therefore to emperor, or render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are of God. It says they were amazed and they left. They hadn't fooled Jesus. 
And we today are still so amazed by that. Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Render to God what belongs to God. We're so amazed at it that we can't figure out what it means. What does it mean? What belongs to God? What belongs to the state? Some suggest there's two different realms. There's, there's the part that belongs to God. There's the part that belongs to the state. And here's different ways that that's interpreted. My heart, my personal faith belongs to Jesus. And the rest of my life is apart from that. Others say my whole life belongs to God. And I have absolutely no obligation, no relationship at all with the state. What do others say? Oh, others say my whole life belongs to God and my relationship to the state belongs to God because it's the same thing. And I know how God wants the state to be. I have that answer. Those are some options. I don't know if that makes sense or not. This morning we were supposed to have another scripture reading that, that Caden ended up reading today. It was from Exodus somewhere, and she was glad I changed it, and so was her grandmother, because that text was a whole lot, this one was a whole lot easier. The reason why I put it in here is because when the people would have heard Jesus talk to the Pharisees and the Herodians that day, many of them, the Jewish people that knew their scripture, would have known that there was a reference in there to something else. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image. Now in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that word image is the word icon, E-I-K-O-N. We get the word icon. We get the word icon looking at our computer. You see the little bulldog head. You click it and you get all the bulldog stuff. You see the... The little bank thing, you click it, you see Amazon. My wife sees Amazon really good. <laughs> click it, and there you go. That's the icon. Y'all know, you know, even us who don't know much about computers know what icons are. But icons are also, you know, reverent symbols. They're always symbols of something else. You know, um, here's one you like. Kentucky basketball is an icon of the best basketball ever in the history of college basketball ever. UK. Oh. Chris isn't here. Can you tell her I said that? Okay. Um, icon. A symbol of, of speaks to something else. We are made in the image of God, Genesis says. When Jesus says, whose head is this and whose title about that coin, the word head there is the word icon. The same word as in let us create people in our image. Whose image is this? Here's what I think Jesus might be doing. Instead of trying to solve this relationship between God and, and our uh, allegiance to the state, whatever that might mean, is the question put upon us is, whose image are we? Who do we belong to? As Christians, we say that we belong to God. Our first commitment is to God. And every other relationship, every other commitment we have is, um, takes second place. 
is reorganized and reformed because of our relationship with Christ. Our family, our friends, our work, our relationship in the community is all based after our first commitment to God. So what does that mean? Well, we belong to God. Everything else flows out of that. But how does our relationship to the state flow out of our commitment to God? We still have responsibilities. We still have commitments. We still have callings in this world. How do we discern what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar, what belongs to the state? Well, I think we begin by looking at the truest image of God that has come into our world, and that is the image of Christ. We seek to live in the image of Christ knowing we can't, but that is how we strive, looking to love God and love others as Christ did. But we also know we fall short, and therefore because we fall short, we're called to humility and grace. I haven't lived in a time in my 50, early 50 years where we have lived in such a politically, especially politically polarizing environment as we do right now. I think knowing that we fall short of being fully committed to God and being that image that God calls us to be, we're called to be people of humility and grace and to recognize that people of faith can have, can see the same issue and come to totally different conclusions. That people of the same faith can view political leaders in woefully, totally different lights How do we make do in a world that is so politically polarizing? I think for us as Christians, we're called to help model humility and grace, even as we seek to be fully committed to being the image of Christ. Now for me, I think that means for me to speak up especially for those who don't have the voice to be heard. But for me, it's a call to be opening to listen to others who disagree with me, to have my thoughts challenged, perhaps even my mind even changed. How do we do that? We, the church, we don't do that. We like that whole polite conversation thing where we're not going to talk about the things that bring out our differences. We may say things like, well, we agree to disagree, but frankly, that doesn't do anything. I was watching TV with my dad last week, and I found one way to go about doing that. Now, you're going to be shocked. Dad and I, of course, most all the time, the TV's on, the whole time the TV's on, and you know, by about 10 o'clock, we've seen three rounds of the same news, you know. 
and there's nothing on ESPN yet worth watching because the ball games aren't on yet, and, you know, we don't, you know, there's a lot of stupid those TV shows on. Anyway, I start looking, and there's a show that I've seen occasionally, and it's called Naked and Afraid. How many of y'all ever seen that show? You can admit that. <laughs> Naked and Afraid is a show that brings together a male and a female who don't know each other at all, and they are literally naked, and they are put into the wilderness of different places all around the world for 21 days. Now, I've never seen a whole episode. I've seen parts of one, and Dad and I watched about half of this one. At least I did. I don't know if Dad watched it or not. They're strangers, but they're strangers who have to rely on each other. At the beginning of the episode, the young lady that shares, she's a mixed-race lady whose views on life and practices were very much of, I hate the word conservative and liberal, but I will say liberal in lots of ways. And the male was an older man, much more conservative, very different from this young woman. And here they are going to be together. She was very scared. Well, if you've ever seen that show, you are, you're naked. Which I... You've got to make a safe place to sleep. You've got to um, make fire. You've got to get clean water to drink. You've got to find food to eat because you're in the wilderness together. Well, by the time I turned it off, and it was about halfway through, the young lady had started to share of herself with this older white man, and they embraced each other because they had been together and spent time together and learned to trust and rely on each other. Even though they had started in such different places. Now what did that say to me? That maybe we the church are called to be naked, not naked naked, but vulnerable willing to risk and trust, but not naked, naked. Naked, but not afraid. Why not afraid? Because we know that that other person is a loved child of God, created in God's image, just like we are, called to learn and love with and from one another. How to go about doing that? That's a hard question in these days. But to just dismiss it, I don't think that is the church's role. But the main thing is that the God who loves us is a God who keeps creating us in God's image and continues to call us to be God's people in all the places of life. And thanks be to God for that grace and love. Amen.